This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Dover Castle, which commands the shortest sea crossing between Britain and the continental countries of the European Union. The Romans built a lighthouse here in the second century to guide ships into the harbour below, which today, of course, is Britain's busiest ferry port and a crucial link with Europe and the European Union. In between, the castle has resisted rebellion and invasion. More recently, in 1940, it was the command centre for the coordination of the evacuation of British troops from Dunkirk. Today, the castle is in the care of English heritage, and it welcomes some 350,000 visitors a year who come from all over the world. It is a magnificent setting, as is the Great Keep, which was built for Henry II in the 1180s, when it was the strong point of the medieval castle. And it remained a military site until the end of the Second World War. And it's here that our panel is holding court for this edition of Any Questions. Helping to peer beyond the keep into the political fog on the day that the UK and the EU were due to part company, Professor Peter Hennessy, Lord Hennessy, constitutional eminence grise and distinguished as a contemporary historian. Bronwyn Maddox, director of the highly regarded Institute for Government, which has served as the nation's bible since the Brexit referendum. Gisela Stewart, former Labour MP during the referendum campaign, chair of the Vote Leave campaign, now chairs Change Britain under the slogan making sure Brexit happens. And Alistair Campbell, one of the most potent voices in support of a people's vote, another referendum. He's editor-at-large of The New European and was, as almost everyone surely knows, Tony Blair's right-hand man during the early, heady years of New Labour in government. Our panel. And our first question, please. Uh, John Tottenham. This week, Banksy put his painting depicting MPs as rowdy and infighting monkeys on show. Do you think Parliament is behaving like a pack of monkeys? Alistair Campbell. Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I I think that MPs are doing an incredibly difficult job. Uh, They're trying to make sense of um, a winning campaign which I think was won by making undeliverable promises to the British people. And they've been trying to do that in the context of a government and a prime minister who, since she became prime minister, has done absolutely nothing to try to bring the country together and to try to bring the different sides of the debate together. And now that we're getting very, very close to the point where real decisions have to be made, where the fantasies are no longer there to be chased, where the unicorns have fallen away, where the myths and the lies and the crimes have been exposed, the MPs are facing really, really difficult choices. And I actually have much more respect today for those who, on both sides, stood out for what they really believe than those, the ones that I have certain contempt for, are the ones who actually went and voted for Theresa May's deal when they know that it's bad for the country when they have said things like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson have said that it's going to leave us as a vassal state. So I actually think we should respect those MPs who have stood up for what they believe, and I hope they will continue to do so because Theresa May's deal is dead and it deserves to be. 
Okay, so Stuart, you used to be in that house. What do you think of the behaviour? I think people expect during elections or the referendum for us to be fierce and passionate and disagree with each other to a great extent. But then once the votes are counted, they have an expectation that uh, you, A, accept and honour the results, and B, that you work towards implementing the results. So even the opposition is known as Her Majesty's loyal opposition that allows the government to govern and not just to oppose things. But what we've got at the moment is, and for, for many people, I agree with Alistair on that, for the best of motives, but nevertheless, uh, sharing your doubts with the voters for two and a half years and just saying it is just too difficult to do, I think in any other job would lead to being, you being handed your P45. And I think that the MPs, the best of motives, the best of intentions are a good starting point, but then comes the responsibility and the responsibilities to allow the government to govern and to implement the results of a referendum. When you say allow the government to govern, when the party, the Conservative Party, is deeply riven, um, isn't it more difficult for an opposition when that party depends for its survival on support from the uh, Democratic Unionist Party to be there at all? Rather difficult to support that party as government when it is so broken in this way. Uh, you are right, uh, Jonathan, and you know all the members of the cabinet and the government are also MPs, so reminding them of their responsibilities does not exclude the cabinet. And the government has made it quite difficult to help them to govern. But nevertheless, I do think what you cannot do is to have a House of Commons that in 2017, albeit as a hung government, was elected on 80% of its representatives having promised to honour the referendum and then spending their entire energy since then to say it is too difficult to implement. It can be done, it should be done, and I think they're, they're, they should really get on with it. How do you judge the behaviour? Bromwell Maddox. I don't think they look like monkeys at all. I think they're approaching this with enormous seriousness and anguish. You hear these... I mean, you know, tales of, of people really trying to reconcile their conscience, their sense of what's best for the country with perhaps what their constituents uh, want, which might be different, or what their, the leadership of their party wants, uh, people really wrestling with whether they're going to stay within their party or not. All that, all that is, is serious. They're also doing a second serious thing, which is, given that the government has um, really stalled on, on this and has uh, struggled so much, they are seeing how far can Parliament take back power, how much can it challenge this whole process and try to shape it? All that is absolutely honourable. What I find less honourable, if you like, is looking back a couple of years that they assented to the start of the Article 50 process without having asked what the destination was going to be. And we're only now... <laughs> we, we are now having in Parliament the serious debate that those MPs should have begun two years ago. Peter Hennessy, you understand parliaments from the days practically when they began. How do you judge it? The key function of the House of Commons is where we have our standoffs. We resolve our standoff rows, our crucial issues. That's where it has to be done. And the deal in an open society like ours, a parliamentary system, is that it's raised voices, yes, raised fists, no. So we've got to expect passion and noise. But I think there's a degree of widespread 
anxiety and regret about the level and the quality of the language, the lack of civility and tolerance. Indeed, I brought with me this evening a speech that Churchill, with his incomparable word power, delivered in Dover in August 46, just after the war, as Lord Warden of the Sanctuary. In, in this very castle? In, I think in this very castle. And he wanted to thank the people of Dover for standing firm. And he talked about this narrow strip of salt water separating us from the continent. You can hear those great rolling cadences, can't you? Which allowed us to develop our own English and British way of life. We have a certain standard of tolerances and decencies which are treasured by us and envied or admired by others. Isn't that wonderful? And I do rather worry that the civility and tolerance that's built very much into the British political system has become really rather rattled since we entered this strange country called Brexit land in June 2016 that has made us so uneasy with ourselves. And the sooner we can restore it, the better. Thank you. John Tottenham, what do you think? I think watching PMQs, uh, MPs' behaviour does seem very similar to um, monkey behaviour um, that I watch on the TV. Um, because of that, post-Brexit, I think the government should not get rid of the EU law that says that monkeys and other animals are fully capable of feeling pain. I wondered what other people thought of that. <laughs> point, point will be taken, and I'm sure those who've been listening will want to contribute to that part of our discussion. Um, if so, Anita Anand will be at any answers. The number to ring is 03 700 100 444. The line's open at 12.30, and they are hectic nowadays, so get in there early, I suggest. Any dot answers at bbc.co.uk is the email address. Tweet us, hashtag BBCAQ, and follow us at BBC Politics. We will go, please, to our next. Christopher Heyman. Now that the Prime Minister has been defeated again, where does this leave us? This time, for the drawal part of the agreement, rejected by 58 votes in Parliament. Uh, there are going to be, the uh, on Monday, the debate over the other options, the indicative debate. And formally, the country leaves the EU on the 12th of April without a deal, unless in the interim there are... Uh, alternatives put forward which can convince Europe that it's worth giving an extension. Uh, where does this leave us, Bronwyn Maddox? Well, it leaves us, as you've said, heading uh, on the face of it for exit from the European Union uh, without a deal on, on April the 12th. We have not managed to get a deal. And uh, there are really a lot of routes that can now open. Theresa May could try to bring back her deal, perhaps informed by whatever happens on Monday when the MPs get together and try to see if there is a, a majority emerging in the Commons for anything, perhaps a customs union. But that would cause her immediately enormous political trouble. She could ask the European Union, uh, which the European Union is already preparing for, for a much longer extension. And this is what a lot of Brexiteers are, are worried about, that a much longer extension with us taking part in the European Parliament elections might mean that it, it, this went on and on uh, for a long time. She could decide uh, to go straight for no deal. And some in her party would like that, but that would be a pretty um, uh, dramatic thing to do. She could even decide to uh, call a general election. And we're expecting that uh, the opposition may—it's it, certainly considering whether to bring another no-confidence vote next week to try to do that. You've really got, uh, again, extraordinarily for something so late in the process, you've got almost every option still in play. Can you elaborate one thing? If on Monday there is a, uh, a coagulation or a 
coalition formed around one or other of the options, and the most, the very close gap there was in, in relation to the customs union and also people's vote. If, for instance, they were able to put something together, can that be put together with the withdrawal agreement as it stands as part of the political declaration to put back? Is that formally the kind of thing that can happen? Yes, it can be put together with a political declaration, the, uh, the non-legally binding bit that wasn't voted on today. Uh, I, I think much more difficult to put it into the withdrawal agreement, uh, the formal legally binding treaty, which was uh, re- rejected by Parliament today, because that's really about the divorce, about the exit bit. Um, it could be uh, put into the political declaration, or they, they could MPs could go to Theresa May and say, "Look, there's really a consensus for a customs union. Um, we would like you to go to the European Union and say, can we uh, amend the political declaration and weave this into it? And, and very likely, we'll get a positive response from the Euro- European Union if, in theory, she did that. The question is, you know, it would give her enormous political trouble to do that if she even felt personally she could because she has said so many times that she doesn't want a customs union. But that is the kind of thing they could do. Or they could even uh, try to bring uh, legislation themselves as MPs and say, look, we're, 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 um, we're going to uh, direct the government to do this. So, and I agree with you. I think the, you know, uh, the, uh, the attention on Monday is very much around that customs union uh, proposition. And it gives this government a lot of trouble because it's a much softer Brexit than they've wanted, and it's the kind of thing that could lead to cabinet resignations, to uh, the Conservative Party splitting, um, if it began to go forward. But that's where the action is on Monday. Would you expect there to be free votes for all ministers, including cabinet ministers, on Monday, given where the country is now? This is a very good question, and I think um, I, I think there's an enormous pressure to do that because trying to whip uh, the uh, party behind one or other of these things risks um, really an awful lot of trouble. But that's exactly how this weekend and the WhatsApp groups are going to be debating, among many other questions. Uh, Gisela Stewart, you, uh, as I indicated, are a Brexiteer. You nonetheless voted or support the Prime Minister's deal or supported, if I'm right. What do you think happens next? What are the implications now from your perspective? I think it was about a week ago when with extraordinary reluctance, uh, whilst my opinion of the Prime Minister's deal hadn't changed, what had changed is the risk of either us crashing out or more to the point, having not leaving at all despite the referendum result. And what troubles me is we're conducting this whole debate ignoring two key players in all this. One is the European Union, who of course has to agree to any of the things which Parliament may come up with. And given that Theresa May still actually have more votes today than any of the alternatives had during the week. And the second one is the voters, 72% of which turned out in, in June 2016 uh, and 17.4 million of them gave a clear mandate, and that did not include a customs union. It did not include the single market, and therefore does it rule I. Out, sorry to interrupt you. Does it? Does it? Given how things flow from when the referendum was held, do you think that 17.4 million specifically said the one thing we do not want is a is a customs union, as opposed to saying we want to be out of here? However, you get us out. 
that was very much part of uh, the, the campaign of what leaving would mean, and that was said both by Remain and by Leave. But can I just make two other points? One is, as we just heard in the news headlines, about the potential of taking part in the European Union elections, uh, which would be conducted on a closed list ballot. Uh, so you, you can't even choose your candidate. You, you just vote for a party, and the parties are so split. It would cost us, according to the Electoral Commission, the last European election cost us 109 million. Quite frankly, I cannot see a way out now than a general election because the parties, whilst they may be divided, the electors will have a chance to change the composition of the House of Commons and who they're sent to represent them. How do you, on that, how would you get to, from here to an election? What would be required on the assumption that the governing party on the whole doesn't like losing power well, I mean, the last time, quite extraordinarily, it was something which was never envisaged in the Fixed Parliament Act, was the Prime Minister just gave an announcement, didn't warn anybody, said we're having general election, and the entire House of Commons said, yes, yeah, but okay, she thought, then. She thought then but she would get an increased uh, majority, didn't she? The, the, she just the, was very the, badly wrong-footed. The problem we've got now, Jonathan, is the only people who kind of are afraid of a general election are over 600 MPs who are fearing of losing their job. I think if you went out and had a vote of confidence on... The, the ability of parliamentary representatives amongst the general public at the moment, they might quite want to like to vote for a change team. One more thing before I bring in Peter. Um, from your perspective, why is the customs union, the softer Brexit, which could conceivably command a majority in the House, uh, cause you such distress? Because a permanent customs union would mean we would have the same relationship to the European Union as Turkey has at the moment and we would be unable to do our own trade deals. One of the three key elements of why people voted to leave was to control of borders, money, and trade deals, and you would have lost one of the th one of third of the key elements. Peter, Peter Hennessy. The big picture, I think, is that we're living with the latest convulsion today and this week, and indeed probably almost certainly next week, the latest convulsion in a sequence of convulsions since the referendum result because we've been trying to run the outcome of a system of plebiscitary democracy, referenda, alongside our more familiar representative democracy, parliament, general elections, and so on. And it's proving near impossible to do that reconciling. If Mrs May had won her vote today, at last that would have been reconciled. The representative democracy would have finally have absorbed the outcome of the plebiscitary democracy. And as long as we carry on in this way, we're going to have that tussle, that permanent tension. Now, I can see the argument that Giesler makes for a general election, but the problem with general elections is that they can never be single issue. Ted Heath found that in his 1974 <coughs> February election. Remember who rules the unions or the government? Mrs May's attempt to do that trick of getting absorbing the, the plebiscitary democracy into the representative in the 2017 general election didn't work. And I fear that a general election now would be right across a spectrum of questions, because they always are. That is the very nature of general elections. You cannot have a single-issue general election. So with this single-issue question, with all its multifaceted sides, you can't resolve it through a general election. <clears throat> and also, it might be quite difficult to engineer. I don't think you could get... Under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, two-thirds of the MPs have to agree to foreshorten a five-year parliament or the government of the day has to lose a vote of confidence, and then 14 days ensue to see if anybody can put forward an administration that can command the House of Commons and take it to the Queen for approval. Not easy, not easy. But I do have my doubts about the general elections being the way to cut through all of this. Two questions. One, um, 
which is the point constantly made by the Prime Minister and those who support her position. She committed herself in the manifesto to leaving the customs union and, um, and not having a, a, a people's vote and leaving the single market. In political practice, if you look back, how many times, either in coalition governments or in moments of crisis, do people breach the commitment they have made in party manifestos? Is it, a, is it very astonishing to do that, or is it actually not entirely unusual? It's, it's quite common, but it's normally over relatively small issues that matter to people, of course, they do. But this one is... We're dealing here with the greatest geopolitical shift in our country since the disposal of the territorial British Empire. It's hard to conceive in peacetime of anything bigger with more implications. And to, be, to breach so many of the pledges on an issue of that magnitude, I think, stands alone in terms of breaches of, breaches of promise. Given that... And the fact that her critics, even within her own government, say that she holds to option A, which is the position she adopts publicly the whole time, and cannot bear to contemplate an option B. And if anyone says to her, this is what they say inside government, she doesn't want to listen. She won't listen because she knows that's what her commitment is. Is it conceivable that she could do you think, move in ways that would reach out across the parties, which would be the only means of getting the customs option, if that is one of the key options? It's very interesting what you say, because I hear the same things about her. Now, I don't want to be unkind to the Prime Minister, because people have been very cruel. The cruelty theatre... Politics is a theatre of cruelty, and it's been particularly cruel to Mrs May, and I don't want to add to it. But her gifts, which are genuine, would make her a very good Prime Minister in a steady-state condition of British politics. But this is not steady-state. This is extremely odd British politics, very stretching British politics. And she's not a prime minister made for the politics of the storm. And it is a storm that we're living through. And, but the, having said that, as she indicated, I think, in the House of Commons today, that she's pretty well run to the end of the line of, of the withdrawal agreement as she would see it. And she's given it her all. She's burned herself up in her cause, which in a very noble and resilient way, full of admiration for her. But this probably is the moment, if she's going to become more flexible she can actually make a case, if, particularly if Parliament votes, if on Monday the common market version comes through, the customs union comes through, and on Wednesday when Parliament, again, the backbenchers, sees the agenda, they begin to legislate to force the Prime Minister to actually adopt that, that surely is the moment when she'll have to adjust. And she will have given it her all and she can make a case for going with dignity, which I hope she's allowed to do. Incidentally, today, Nigel Dodds, the leader of the, uh, of the, of the DUP in, in the Commons, said, I'd stay in the EU rather, rather than risk Northern Ireland's position inside the UK. And in those uh, indicative votes, he abstained on the option which required to be in the customs union and to be close to the single market because the UK commitment for the DUP trumps their strong sense of Brexit. You're nodding at that. That, that is their position, yeah. isn't it, Gisela? Yeah. yeah. Which may uh, indicate, Bronwyn, before I, I haven't, I absolutely haven't forgotten you, Alistair, I promise you, even though you're a little bit, I can't quite see you at the moment, because you're a bit along the level left. Um, th th that could conceivably make a difference to how people inside the Conservative Party view her deal, if it comes through with, with, a, with some kind of amendment of the kind you were talking about. That is, to incorporate the customs union and or... Uh, the, the, the single market into um, the, the political declaration? Well, it could, um, but it, 
you know, the point that she's making today, um, which she's made quite steadily, is, look, all these options that the MP is going to be talking about on Monday, um, bar the second referendum one, these, these are all about uh, the future, about the political declaration. All of these are going to have to be coupled with uh, the withdrawal agreement, uh, the divorce deal, because otherwise you, um, you don't have something you can ratify. But no one seems to disagree with the principles of the withdrawal agreement itself, do they? Apart from the fact that they voted it down uh, today and <laughs> rejected it, and it was isolated, and as she asked them, vote just on this, just on this. And, uh, uh, and they wouldn't, that, they wouldn't that do that. that because they can't, some of them don't like the idea of separating it because then you've got this, this so-called blindfold Brexit, Brexit as Labour puts it. Uh, you don't know what you, you're voting for. You have to have the withdrawal agreement alongside, as she'd originally and said. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that um, retort of Labour's, there's, I mean, there's a real resonance to that in that, that you know, there's obvious sense you don't want to vote for something and not know what the future is, except it's a bit disingenuous, I think, because uh, the political declaration is not binding. It could always be changed. Any prime minister coming in, any new conservative leader was going to be able to, to change that. And I think Labour is really hiding behind that and, and really still manoeuvring to see whether or not it can get a general election. With characteristic patience, Alistair Campbell, you've been quietly sitting there contemplating what the others are saying, waiting for your own quiet, sweet words. Alistair Campbell. Um, well, I think, I don't believe no deal's going to happen. I think that the country has looked over that precipice, and Parliament certainly has. And I think what's going to happen is there will be an extension. And I, for one, don't see why we should be worried about having European elections. I certainly don't think, Gisela, that the cost, 109 million, should, uh, should worry us, given that's less than a third of the extra money we're going to get for the health service uh, every week. Um, in the, uh, as promised by the campaign, which is today thrown in the towel on its legal case, so you've admitted that your, your uh, campaign broke the law, and it's, of course, a fraction of the four billion that we've blown on no deal. So where do we go now? I agree with, uh, with Peter that I don't believe a general election resolves this. I think the issue is too big, it's too dominant, the parties are actually not united, the membership and the leadership of the parties are not united. So you'd end up with a new leader, let's say it was a new Labour Prime Minister, or or a new um, Conservative Party leader, should Theresa May go and be replaced, God forbid, by Boris Johnson, <laughs> doing the same thing. So I don't believe that works. I also think the options that are being thrown around, Norway doesn't work for me because it, it actually freedom of movement, rule taker, not rule maker. The customs union, which has become the new kind of trendy faddy thing, it doesn't solve the Irish border. We have no say on trade. We don't solve immigration. We don't solve EU rules and budget payments. And it's not clear that it can be negotiated. Oddly, Alistair, on that, oddly on that, you find yourself in the same camp as the Brexiteers in your interpretation of the consequences of either do, of those two options. I do, I do, I do. And that's why I, th I think that the... I mean, Bromman and I have been doing a lot of telly this, together this week, and I've been saying all week, I absolutely do believe that the choice now is going to go, have to go back to the people at some point, and it's going to be between no Brexit... It's going, to, it's, going to be, it's going to be between no Brexit and a credible, deliverable form of Brexit, 
which is not what Gisela and Boris and those people promised at the referendum where Brexit could mean anything that you wanted it to be. And I'm sorry, well, you, could, you can have no deal if you want your county to be a car park. You can have no deal. You can have no deal if you want, if you want your economy to be trashed. You can have no deal. You can have no... You don't have... Can, can it, the, uh, Alistair, because uh, some people can't hear that question. The point's being made... That the, the, Heckler, saying, too, Heckler too, as she said, we are free. And a democracy, in a democracy... A democracy, as David Davis said, ceases to be a democracy if it cannot change its mind. The country is changing its mind because the Brexit that was sold was sold on lies and crimes. It cannot be delivered. And the best thing that we can do is for it not to happen. Just before I bring in, in Gisela uh, on that... Um, in you, you say you can have no deal, but you don't expect to have no deal in the referendum that you would uh, offer. Would that not, or do you acknowledge that that would uh, cause a great deal of frustration and maybe anger for those Leave voters who say, we want no deal, who support, as it were, the hard line? Well, no, wait a minute. Let's just go back. Let's go back to the referendum. Geisler and Boris Johnson and Rees Mogg and all the rest of them, they all said... No deal was not even an option. They've rewritten history for no deal now to be an option. And I'm not talking. I'm, I'm, I, where I agree with you, Jonathan, I think that I said, for me, the choice has to be between remain and a credible, deliverable form of Brexit. And the Brexiteers have to decide what that is. And the reason why Farage and Johnson and Rees-Mogg are in the mess that they're in, they have never, ever, ever put forward a credible plan for Brexit. So if they can bring one forward, then they can put it to the people. Bronwyn Maddox. I completely agree. It's increasingly likely to go back to the people, but I think it's much more likely that it goes back in a general election than in a second referendum. On on that, if it doesn't, because we've talked about the the, whether how you get to the election... If it wasn't an election, do you can the Parliament would have to opt in favour of a of, of a people's vote, a second referendum? Yes, you Correct. couldn't get there otherwise. And Alice is nodding his head at that. So you'd have to get either as a result of the indicative vote or because the government itself brings it forward. Well, yeah, can, go I, on. can I? Can I, I, mean, I this. I know she's not going to listen to this, and I don't. I suspect she's busy. She won't be listening to the program anyway. Brilliant though you are, Jonathan. But if I if I were sitting in a room now with Theresa May. I would say to her, look, you've got to understand, you've been defeated three times now. You've had the first and the fourth biggest parliamentary defeat in history. Your deal is dead. Stop flogging a dead horse. The only way now for you to have any sort of credibility, any sort of legacy for yourself, is to stop being a player and start to be the referee in this process. Try to bring the country together and lead it through this crisis by putting together that choice and by saying and then she can get on and do housing and mental health and and education all the other stuff that is being completely obliterated okay by this madness what's wrong with the propositions advanced by alistair gisler well first of all uh, 
I would quite like to know what Alistair's definition of a credible, durable uh, form of Brexit is other than staying in the single market, staying in the customs union and uh, staying where we are. Isn't that what the people's vote's all about? Because no, I'm not sure. I am not sure. What? Exactly. Well, okay. So, the, yes, sorry, yes, the audience, the audience quite can't hear, so I need to repeat the question, let Brexiteers... Uh, I mean, say the, you can hear in here, but at home, some of the audience will miss it because you don't have microphones out where you're sitting. So um, the question is, let, let the Brexiteers decide is what is being proposed. Yes, and I think the problem is not the decision that we're going to leave. So the problem has been uh, the, the conduct of Parliament. And that's why, for example, today, a, a lot of people who originally thought that the withdrawal agreement was not the kind of Brexit we ideally campaigned for, but we were prepared to make compromises. And I don't know how many of you actually listened to the Today programme this morning, where Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, was interviewed. And, you know, he's not an extremist uh, by any chance. He's a very cautious uh, governor. And he said we should have prepared for a no deal. The Chancellor should have actually made the proper preparations. He looked at the economic performance that actually our economic growth, despite Brexit, was greater than Germany's. The, the exchange rate against currencies is now the same as it was when he lo- left office in 2013. So isn't the answer now... Didn't he al- also say, forgive me, didn't he also say so that this was a big political decision? It was about identity, it was about the, the nature of this country, the nature of individuals' relationships with them, with themselves and with other countries. It, uh, there was far more important than the economic argument. I think he was saying something uh, along those uh, lines. Absolutely, and that's why I think that if people say we want to have a people's vote, I say yes, that is a general election, because as if Peter Hennessy said to begin with, part of our problem is that a representative parliamentary democracy went to the point of having a direct participatory referendum, the outcome of which the MPs didn't like, what's going to happen if you go back and people vote the same again? We would have had increased uncertainty, we would have increased the divisions. So if you really want to go to the people, yeah, have it in general election. I want to bring in Peter, Peter Hennessy. You touched earlier on the on people's feelings and the potential for them to get angry and frustrated by what was happening. There were today outside Parliament big demonstrations, as there have been huge demonstration in favour of having uh, a second referendum for a million people or whatever it was. Some of those voices were saying traitors, and uh, these were some of the more extreme sentiments, we have ways of making you vote. Um, not only the, the quasi-establishment figure of Nigel Farage, but Gerard Batten of UKIP and Tommy Robinson, all in different groups, Stephen were out there. Leonard. Is there not a serious... Uh, do you fear that that is real, or can that be managed by politicians who say, we're giving you the opportunity to say whether you like it or not? I'm not one of those who would ever predict civil disorder. We have a deep aversion to that in this country, but there are some very worrying signs of a level of tension within the national family of the UK that we've not experienced before. And I'm a Remainer, but I've, always not, I've never been a second referendum man. And I know technically referenda are only advisory, that the sovereignty of Parliament always prevails in the end. But both major parties told the electorate in 2016 that they would respect the outcome of the referendum. And votes have to be sacred in an open society. You cannot say, would you kindly try harder and think again? So that's what worries me. I'm, when I, 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 it's not a moment for levity, really, but I think... The oh, prob- a moment of levity is always the, the, welcome. The problem, the problem began just out here 8,200 years ago 
when a huge landslip in the sea just off Norway produced a tsunami which took away Doggerland, which linked what's now Britain to Belgium and the Netherlands, cut here through the white cliffs of Dover. You can just hear them out of that door, can't you, saying, thank God at last we're separated. No more summer holidays with them over the water with their overrich food and their ghastly chocolates. We can stand behind our moat and polish our prejudices and our eccentricities. So if, I'm, so if I was writing a history of Brexit, it would start out of that very door 8,200 years ago. And it's a question that divides us like no other because it goes right to the heart of who we are as individuals as well as a country. Methuselah, thank you very much for that. Um, we're just very, I just very, very briefly, Alistair now I have a question for, for Bronwyn as well. No, I, I just wanted to, to, to make the point that... This idea, I, I don't like referendums or referenda. Um, I wish we'd never had it in the first place. But I do think that it having, the decision having been taken in a referendum, I do think whatever the outcome of this process now, it has to go back for a specific confirmatory ballot because that is the only way, the only basis on which I think we can actually start to bring the country together again. So I wish we hadn't had the first one, but having had it, I think that this now can only be resolved by it going back to the people specifically on the point of Brexit. And if it is rejected, um, then, then does that bring the country together again? You know, that is, that is the fear of many MPs uh, who would very you know, um, much like themselves to have another referendum, but fear what the, the, result, um, the effects of the result uh, if that overturned the first one. I, I, I just think, well, I'm absolutely not advocating it. I totally believe, uh, agree with Peter and Alistair that a general election would not solve these issues and isn't a good way of doing it. It is how the UK has traditionally thrown things back to the people, and it does have the virtue of simplicity. And while we're not quite at the end of the road uh, of um, the process at the moment, uh, you can see how many roads are indeed pointing to that. When you, when you look at the, the House of Commons and the... Uh, arithmetic, do you believe that MPs could find themselves, assuming that the election option isn't available, mm -hmm. that MPs could find themselves uh, saying, yes, we would like to have a people's vote, a second referendum, and that that could be brought into the political declaration in some way and then go to the European Union and then get the extension in which that would be possible? Is that, do you see that as, 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 as a, a, a conceivable option, a likely option? I do, because... No, I, I'm not asking. Oh, sorry. Right. sorry, sorry, sorry. I know you do, because you said so, Alistair. Actually. No, sorry, I thought you were looking at me. Sorry. No, sorry. I, I was just well, a bit cross both, up. Both, I just, both of us. I you, well, then you're one behind it, the other. That allows me to say I don't. Um, <laughs> I, um, I don't think you need all those. I, you know, the second referendum question sits alone. It's about whether anything, if MPs have managed to agree on anything, whether that goes back mm. to the people. So I think you sort of set that aside. Then the question is about whether they agree on anything and, you, uh, and whether that gets wrapped into the political declaration. Thank you very much. We're going to go to our next with a reminder of any answers. 03 700 100 444. Anita Arnand will be waiting and we will go to the next question, please. Emma Ford, how do we begin to recover our international reputation post-Brexit? Built-in assumption that the international reputation has been damaged by what has been happening. Um, how do you begin to recover our international reputation? Peter? Well, first of all, you have to cohere as a, as a nation. I like to think that each generation has, it puts its shared aspirations on a flag around which it can rally. It embroiders the things that matter most to it. My generation, early post-war, had a particularly lustrous flag. It was the Beverage Report on Welfare, NHS 48, 
1944 Education Act, NATO, Empire into Commonwealth, a glorious, lustrous flag. And I was thinking the other day, what kind of flag could we embroider with shared aspirations if we get through this reasonably intact? And we'd all have different ones we'd want to put up there. But I think there's three, even in the immensely polarised circumstances we're living through at the moment in our politics, there's three things I would put up. One is getting social care right for the first time. To do for social care now what we did for health in 48. One is a huge programme of social housing building, a public-private mix. And thirdly... And thirdly, getting technical education right for the first time. We've been trying since the late 19th century, and we still haven't done it. And other, other people, I'm sure in this hall, we could come together and put, put some really terrific shared aspirations up there. That's the first order question. And then the rest of the world might be surprised, as indeed we would be, by the degree to which we found a way of cohering after this blistering period of falling out over everything which goes against our normal grain of conducting British politics. We could take, we've been, not been living through a finest hour, to say the least, but we could live a finest hour if we managed somehow to do that in the early 2020s. Yes, as someone said to me, how, how could the sixth largest economy in the world with a reputation for administrative capacity and political stability get itself into such a mess? Um, to which I said, well, I've seen that kind of mess before when I first came to, the, uh, to England. It was in the winter of 1974 during the three-day week. And uh, Europe sort of looked at the UK with, with total bafflement, only to experience in years to come that the challenges which we had were facing them as well. You tend to forget that at the moment the uh, euro economies are struggling. Christine Lagarde uh, just issued a warning today, the head of the IMF, Greece, 33% youth unemployment. The yellow vests in France. Sweden had trouble building, forming a government. I think what we are seeing is a massive realignment of uh, political opinions. And I think we will regain our, our, our reputation by actually arriving at decisions. Uh, and I think the process of it is going to be pretty awful. But this isn't going to last. I think we will realign and will re-establish our reputation for political stability. You, you, you accept Emma Ford's uh, premise that our international reputation needs to recover because it's in a bad place? At the moment, they are utterly, totally baffled. Uh, and, uh, of course, the sad thing is they're not alone, so are we. <laughs> Alistair Campbell. Um, well, my, my mother died a few years ago, and... When she died and we were clearing out the house, I came across lots of my old school reports. And one of them, when I was 13, history, it said, Alistair's essay on the decline of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a very good piece of work. And the reason I say that is it sort of prompted me in the thought that this, if we're not careful, I think is a massive moment in the decline of the United Kingdom. Our reputation has been trashed abroad. We are being watched. John Burke at the moment is a global star because our parliamentary debates and this process is being watched all around the world like a soap opera of dysfunctional characters. And the Prime Minister is being profiled on a daily basis and people are saying, how on earth has British politics come to this? Now, how do we restore that Sorry to sound like a, a stuck record. We restore it by showing that we're big enough to admit when we've made a mistake, to change our minds, not to do it, and then to re-establish our reputation 
by showing that our values are not the values of Trump, they're not the values of populism, they're not the values of Putin, they are the values of European liberal social democracy, and we engage in that properly, lead and reform in Europe, the opportunity to do that is there, and if we seize it, this country can are get you, through this crisis. Are you saying, Alistair, briefly... <laughs> that the recovery of Britain's reputation, of which he spoke eloquently, is contingent upon remaining within the European Union, and that if we leave the EU, uh, we cannot have a reputation, which implies no. in your, what you said? No, you can, of course we'll have a reputation. There's, there's always going to be amazing things about the UK, and we, we'll always have, particularly in the kind of whole soft power space, an awful lot going for us. But don't underestimate in the world that's defined by the pace of change how quickly these things can go. And you talk to... I travel around the world the whole time. You talk to diplomats in different parts of the world. We're already less relevant than we were. We're already not having the phone picked up to our people to find out what we think because we're just not as important as we were because of the decision that we've made. And that has real impact upon our standing in the world and upon our economic strength and performance around, around the globe. So we've got to... It's not contingent, but I think if we did it, that is the way to rebuild it. Roman Maddox? I think we can get our reputation back fairly quickly after this. I, uh, there's no question uh, that our reputation has had an incredible battering. I used to run the foreign news of the Times... And we knew that most people in, in uh, countries didn't know the names of more than a couple of, of uh, politicians in other countries. And you knew something was going really bad in a country if suddenly other countries knew all kinds of names of politicians, let alone the speaker and the color of his ties and so on, uh, then you were doing really badly. But having said that, I really don't think the whole system is broken. I think this is you know, a deep political uh, division and debate that is going on. And I don't think, and I spent a lot of my time arguing that British um, democracy and constitution is not broken. Um, it is uh, trying, and so far not succeeding, in solving a particular problem. So how we get our reputation back after all this, first with um, economic growth, that is always respected. Second, by not alienating other countries with uh, a system of immigration or visas that makes it impossible for them to engage and send bright people here. And thirdly, by not doing one of the things that would cause uh, things to be even worse in the world's uh, um, imagination, which is uh, contriving to lose Scotland or Northern Ireland as a result of this. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the Hoops programme. Those who are listening who wish we'd talked about other issues as well, I hope will understand why we concentrated exclusively in this programme on this day, on this set of questions. Next week, it will be five weeks before, almost forgotten so far, um, the local elections. We're into what's called the pending period next week. On the panel, the Brexit Minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, the Green MP, Caroline Lucas, the... Vice President of Airbus, Catherine Bennett, and A.N. Other as yet to be known. Um, from here, in the fantastic keep of the wonderful Dover Castle, thank you to our hosts here, English Heritage. Thank you to our audience for coming, to our panel for debating. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. 
To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.